Hello and welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host, Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight, this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. So I'm thrilled today to have Lottie Roberts join me on the podcast. Lottie has over 20 years experience of working in organisations, leading and supporting people through change. As she says, people are at the heart of what makes change work or fail. And having worked at about 110% throughout most of her career in both a personal and a professional capacity, as she puts it, the wheels fell off. But this story does have a happy ending. And through her business, Mind You, she has a focus now on mindfulness. And she is more drawn to helping people change rather than organisations change. She's a natural communicator and a people person. And this is how you describe yourself on your website, Lottie. But I could not agree with you more. You are probably one of the easiest people that I've ever spoken to on my podcast. So welcome and nice to see you. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you to say that. You like to think that you're easy to talk to, but sometimes it doesn't always end up the reality. So thank you. A nice way to start. No worries. You just have a natural energy, which is just wonderful. And it radiates through even through a speaker. Oh, thanks. (laughs) So we're going to start. I'm going to take you back to your youth, if you don't mind. Um, And I'm I'm doing so because I saw a really interesting point on your website uh, where you say that you were the fancy pants at school. I don't know whether you recall pointing that. Um, And you were the girl at school who, when being chosen for a sports team, you were like, pick me, pick me. (laughs) And so my question is, were you aware at that age that you were confident? Um, I think I was aware that I was bold. And I don't know if bold and confident are the same thing, but I know I I knew that I was bold. Like I was one of these people right from a kid that if you had spinach in your teeth, I'd go, you got spinach in your teeth, <laughs> or, you know, your skirt stuck in your knickers or something like that, <laughs> you know, and um, that obviously can come across as confidence, but it also can work against you because you can feel like you're the squeaky wheel, you, you know, that you're not conformist. So I think confident in terms of, bold but maybe under the surface there was it had the opposite effect of like oh what why isn't anybody else like being bold like this why isn't anyone else speaking out if that makes sense yeah and so just to sort of segue into confidence and what it means because you've described it as bold but now you've sort of matured a little bit what does confidence mean to you so um yeah I was reflecting on this question as I was preparing for the interview and um I like to kind of do that word association, like what are the words that pop into your head? And confidence to me is a lot about courage and a lot about um, trusting in yourself. So I see confidence as like really tapping into that intuition, you know, that gut feeling, that feeling inside of like say something's not right or I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing or in the wrong place. It's tapping into that and then your actions following it. Um, and you have to obviously kind of slow down and you have to also get rid of the noise and distractions around you. And the confidence is, even though it might go against the grain 
of what's going on. You know intuitively that this is the right thing or the wrong thing that you're doing, and you then take action as a as a consequence. I think if I'd been that's that's my my answer now as forty eight year old Lottie. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I'd been asked that question twenty years ago, I'd have thought it was like never being nervous about anything, you know, just getting stuck in, not caring what you looked like, and you know, always going for stuff, but. I feel confidence now, my view of it is a lot more nuanced and actually a lot more subtle. Um, so I, that, that there's a paradox. I, I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the paradox because I think people that look confident underneath can actually be less confident. And that's possibly 20 years ago, I probably looked really confident because I was such a try hard. So like underneath it, you know, it was like really over trying, which is probably that 110%. In some ways, I'm more confident than I've ever been before, but I'm a lot more um, reserved and discerning into when I lean into things and when I don't. So sometimes that kind of quiet confidence, which could sometimes be seen as hesitancy or introversion, is actually a sign of confidence. And then the try hard over trying can be a sign of underconfidence. That's just my reflection. Yeah, and I really like you stepped into a question that I get asked, but also ask myself around is confidence an external or an internal feeling? And I often get asked this, if I feel confident, how is that being displayed externally? And likewise, people who are externally confident, are they confident internally? So how does that play out, particularly with the work you do around mindfulness? So first of all, play out in terms of how I've experienced it for myself is it is kind of sometimes the opposite. So I've most of my life been quite an anxious person. I don't think I realized until I've done a lot of the work on myself in my adulthood, how anxiety has been a thread that's run through it. And I think that's why I've had this kind of tendency to over try because, you know, that's tends to be, if you're anxious about something, you're always planning every scenario and, and, you know, putting think you want everything to be just so. Um, in terms of mindfulness and how that can help was, well, the first thing, you know, if, if I just define what mindfulness is for people that may not, because it gets it gets pushed around and um, I think gets misbranded a little bit because mm. people often think can't, mindfulness is about being just calm and serene. But actually mindfulness is, is really means awareness um, and remembering and um, that kind of it, it requires you to do a lot of self-reflection and self-awareness, you know, being aware of why you're triggered, why you might not be confident, why you might be anxious. So um, through the practice of mindfulness, and mindfulness is a practice, you start to look into why do I react this way? Why do I feel this way? Um, How does that turn up in terms of my actions? How does that turn up in terms of my relationships and how I put myself out in the world? And then from starting to have that understanding and self-awareness, you can then start to go, well, maybe I'm going to change course because um, how I'm behaving or how uh, how I'm going along in my life is not actually getting me the results and what I what I want and what's important to me. So um, that practice of mindfulness requires stillness and a slowing down and the slowing down, which is not very, um, it's not, not something that we do nowadays is slow down very often and it's a big part of the work that I do with people we start to really see things how they really are. Mindfulness is about seeing the nature of reality um, in ourselves and that around us. And sometimes that reality sucks. 
as I say. Um, sometimes like self-awareness can be a bitter pill, but it's also a really amazing healing pill if you can swallow it down to start to make proper change in your life and and get the most out of your life and flourish in your life. So um, hopefully that explains, but I'll pause there in case that's um, you want to ask something that wasn't. I was just going to lead into, because I love that um, piece around self-awareness and how being sort of having that self-awareness can actually then come and show externally as confidence. And I say that because whenever I work with clients, the first place I start is on them. It's not on the context or the environment they're in. I, I always like to bring them back to, okay, well, let's talk about you now. Let's talk about what's going on for you. Uh, and many people that I've come across don't have that self-awareness they get a feeling but they don't actually know how how can you help people who are listening to this really start to be self-aware what what can you advise them Hmm. so the first thing I want to say is possibly the most counterintuitive thing that 99% of the people on the planet um, are even thinking about doing and that is to pause (laughs) to stop to pause And that's hard because, I mean, people have got long to-do lists. They've got so many expectations on them and also a lot that they put on themselves, um, lots of things, balls that they're juggling. Um, But I have this saying that there's no rhythm without pause. Um, And in the pause, what you can start to do is get clarity in terms of being aware of um, what's going on in your emotional climate what kind of thoughts are coming up so you know something that really gets in the way of confidence is our inner critic um and i think most people are possibly aware they have an inner critic nowadays because it's talked about a lot i don't think until you stop though you realize that that mean girl in your head is driving your life is holding you back from making decisions, is making you take the job that you don't really want in your heart, but you think it's what everybody else possibly thinks you should do or um, not feel confident in your body and how you look because it doesn't quite look like somebody else's or that you haven't done 100% of your to-do list because, I mean, who in the history of the planet at the moment is actually getting to the bottom of their to-do list anyway, you know? But that mean girl, that inner critic is um, all that drill sergeant, you could say, in the is is oh is is on it's on play in the background all the time so when you pause you get to see how it's really got the reins on pulling the reins on your life and start start to take back those reins I, I talk about the mind as being um a terrible master but it can be a wonderful servant but in the pause we have to then take back the reins and and be the master of our own mind and um that's when I think the the path of confidence, we start to go down the path towards more confidence. Knowing that confidence doesn't necessarily mean you've kind of got that Amy Cuddy superwoman pose going on or something like that with your power suit and your shoulder pads or whatever. It's actually that inner trust and inner knowing. So you sound like you've probably got mindfulness nailed. You know, you're like the guru <laughs> of mindfulness. But I'm oh, no, don't let me misbehave myself. I still, I still lose my shizzle, believe me. I've got three young boys, <laughs> but, I, but I lose it way less. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. But I was going to ask you, so, okay, you do lots of mindfulness, and I know you do that on a daily basis, and that's absolutely your practice. But would you mind sharing with me, what's your drill sergeant still saying to you? What's your mean girl still saying to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So I I know this uh, drill sergeant and mean girl pretty well. And I think part of actually uh, taming it is to befriend it 
you know, and that's a tip I would say is befriend your drill sergeant. And then when she feels she's being heard, she starts to chirp down a little bit. But um, common ones, and this all kind of leads into um, limiting beliefs that you probably work with a lot as a coach. Um, I became really aware of like the, the loudest ones. And actually, I still notice it now, but I just, I'm, I, I don't necessarily let it order me around. So one is, um, I always feel like I'm, is the old chestnut if you're not quite doing enough. You know, that I always think, God, a day, and I don't know if it's about getting older, like a day goes very quickly, a week goes quickly, a month goes quickly. And I always feel like I'm not doing as much. I'm always like, oh, God, I could have done more today. Where did I waste time? Um, so I always feel like I'm in, inefficient. Um, yet if you talk to any of my friends or any of the people I work with, that's not what they would say. <laughs> Um, and then another one is actually there's something wrong with me is another, I think, because I've always been someone who does, as I said at the start of the conversation, if something's not right, I don't settle. Um, and I do, sometimes it takes me a little bit longer. Um, as I've got older, it's taken less longer, but I don't settle for things. So if somebody's behaving badly, I will call them out on it. Um you know, if um, somebody is, you know, if, if if I notice like one of my friends, and I've had to actually do this quite recently, you know, I noticed that every time I met with this particular friend, she was getting her phone out, wasn't paying attention, never really very much, very self-absorbed. I, I eventually, it took me a while to figure out how to do it in a way that was compassionate, you know, called her out on it. And, um, you know, so, but because of that, because I'm the one that will go against the grain there has been also I've noticed my inner critic says there's something wrong with you you know these kind of things happen to you what is it about you that they happen to you that makes sense yeah and and then another one is about being liked which I think again like if you go to that overconfidence that over trying is trying to get approval and people to like you that's one that's been up there in the past and now I'm just like well if you do things for the right intention you know, and and you're and you're kind and you know compassionate, then some people will still not like you. You know, and that's nothing about me. That's about them. You know, so it's like what people think of me is none of my business. It's taken me a long time to get to that, and actually to kind of be kind and and like myself, if that makes sense, which I do now. And I hear that a lot around that person must think or they don't like me or projecting their views onto other people, which are not true. And the problem is always with the other person, not with the actual individual. But I just want to go back to something where you said you you make friends with your, your inner voice or your drill sergeant. And some people might be thinking, what on earth does that mean? How do I do that? How have you done that? And, and how do you help your clients now? So with going back to mindfulness, one of the things under that underpins mindfulness, I would just also say that it's such a huge 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 topic you know I've been practicing for 11 years now um and I've been teaching for three years and I still feel like I'm that it's such a huge subject but under underneath um mindfulness they have these foundational attitudes um and there's things like patience trust um non-striving and one of them is actually acceptance and I think you know I, I like to say it's like meeting yourself where you're at it might not be where you want to be but making friends and meeting yourself where you're at and others as well 
um, because it's, again, this expectations I talk about. There's a great little phrase. I, I didn't come up with it, but I love it, which is expectations, suffering under construction, you know. Um, and uh, so I, I became really aware of I was someone that had high expectations of everyone around me and of myself. So going back to making friends with your um, your kind of inner critic, you're in a drill sergeant, that inner mean girl, is I think giving it space to say its piece because usually all of those things within us, those little voices, actually there is some kind of protection mechanism, but they get off balance and off kilter because we push all these things away, which is why the mindfulness in terms of sitting and seeing what there is important because what comes up is stuff we maybe don't want to look at. But once we can look at it, we can digest it and process it and then give it space to kind of dull down and just it's done its job. So with something like, um, you know, you're not liked or and all of these limiting beliefs and stuff and in these little phrases normally come from your childhood. That's the one thing I said. They very, they very rarely come from adulthood. They normally come from like the first 20 years of your life. Um, not always, but often. And so seeing it and then kind of go, well, where did it come from? And, and it's almost kind of, you know, I, it's almost, I like to kind of do it in a third person. It's almost like I, I see you. It's like my anxiety. I call it Annie Anxious. You probably think I'm completely crazy. But these things have helped me. So, like, when it says, like, oh, what if it goes wrong? What if when you do this presentation to 400 people, you just make a complete numpty of yourself or something like that? You know, it's like, thank you for letting me know that. But I've done all my work and my prep. Mm. and you know but thank you for you know giving me that that little bit of insight but I'm all good so I think things like that are a good balm and it's the same with the the inner drill sergeant if it's saying you're not enough go well actually you've done the best you can today and you probably need a break so that you don't run out of capacity so it's kind of having that response so that's one way that I deal with it but there's another way a very specific exercise I do when I'm um you know I've I've lead people through like meditations and things like that because sometimes I'll theme my meditations around particular areas and self-compassion and inner criticism is something I look at but what I'll get people to do is I'll get them to think about like a time when they have had something really bad has happened and they've noticed those inner drill sergeant all those voices come up but then I've got them to imagine somebody comes into the room this is like in a meditation so you've got them kind of you know, they're able to visualize it pretty easily that really cares about them and has a c- uncomplicated caring, you know, so like someone that's got deep, simple affection for them, a really good friend, something like that. And they come into the room and they tap on their shoulder and they whisper something in the ear and that to, to you know, to you when you're in that place, that bad place. And I say, what do they say? And then I get them to write it down. And this practice I didn't design, I do, there's a, a, a couple of amazing teachers around self-compassion, Kristin Neff and Chris Germer, um, and they have followed a, a lot of their work and I use a lot of their work. So this is one of their practices. But if you write it down and then use that as your little mantra that you say to yourself when you're in that place where you notice all my inner critics out again, you know, I'm getting these. And so the one for me, which is quite profound and I use it all the time because if you're trying to kill your inner critic, like it's, you're going to waste a lot of energy, but this kind of is the balm and it, all it is, is I hear you. What is it? Um, I'm here for you. Um, I love you. What do you need? I'm here for you. I love you. What do you need? 
And I imagined my husband coming in and whispering. That's what he would say to me if he saw me in a in a state of distress. And so I say that to myself, you know, when I'm in those positions, which I still am, you know, I suffer, I've got an autoimmune condition, I get a lot of chronic pain and uh, flare ups, which mean I've got a lot of disability when that happens. And then I go into all kinds of bad places. And so I just say to myself, I'm here for you. I love you. What do you need? And it's incredibly healing. Now, the phrase might be different for other people. But I really encourage people to try that exercise. I think it's a really great way of getting confidence in yourself in that moment in a way that's compassionate confidence. Because if confidence is just making you, I don't know, do a few extra hours so that you're going to burn yourself out or, um, you know, physically, you know, um, exhaust yourself, then that's not very helpful. So you want compassionate confidence, you know, rather than drill sergeant confidence. (laughs) I love two things you said there. You said, um, thank your inner critic. I love that idea of saying thanks very much for bringing that to my attention. We'll move on. But also like the exercise about somebody walking in and whispering in your ear. And as you were talking about that, I actually imagined one of my friends saying something to me, which is just wonderful and and so easy to do in a way. Obviously, you've got to be in probably a a calmer space than, than doing a podcast. But um, but certainly that those are great exercises. I love those. Thank you. I'm just going to take you back to your career on change management because I think it is so important uh, in part of your development now to, to go into sort of mindfulness and, and run retreats, etc. So um, change management. I imagine when you got into it, probably didn't actually exist in a in a sort of profession. I imagine there was project management and there was HR and there was probably internal comms, but nothing has changed management. How did you get into it? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because when I um, do talks and stuff like that and I talk about my career, I I got into change management before it was even a thing. You know, if you'd have looked it up, there was no such capability. And it really, it's only, it's nearly 25 years ago that I started getting into it, but that's not what it was called then. And that's how I became to know it um, as, you know, as it sort of matured. So that the way I got into it, because I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent, um, and I worked for uh, British Telecom. And um, I, if I look back on my career, I've always been interested in things that are about enabling and helping people to navigate stuff like change. You know, I've always wanted to have a real people focus. Always anything I've done in my career has always had a real people focus in the center of it. And so um, basically, this, this is like shows how old I am, actually, when we were kind of moving from an analog world to a digital world. So British Telecom was like, at that point, like men up poles, fixing you know, um, <laughs> poles, stuff like that. And they were going into that, before, you know, just as like email was taking off on the internet. They were, they were building this big internet operations center. And they also had all of these staffs and engineers that worked for them that were, they were like those kind of old networky type engineers. And they didn't want to just like make a load of people redundant. And then, and also there was obviously high demand for new capability. Um, They wanted to kind of get people from men up poles to IP engineers, like um, Cisco network engineers. And so um, because of the kind of things, I'd always been kind of one of those like girl Fridays in the office in terms of what I, I did and always very people focused. And um, so, you know, I was asked, would I be interested in kind of looking at putting together this kind of, it's like a, it, 
they called it a training program, but really it was a change management plan of how do you get people from this place to this very different place. Um, and so I, you know, it was not, not just me, it was a team of us. We um, worked together with that bit around the people capability I was kind of in charge of. And then I was also at the same time, there was three projects they gave me. Um, one was around kind of getting graduates kind of up to speed very quickly with new capabilities um, that had very different kind of um, degrees and things like that. And another was um, around kind of behavioral stuff. So it was at that, we call it growth mindset now, but they didn't even really call it growth mindset back then. And it was a program called Winning Edge. And it was all the kind of a lot of mindfulness stuff, a lot of NLP. So getting that like into the culture. So I just kind of picked them up. I had no real background in it, but I think sometimes the best way to get experience is through that. And so that's how I started. And then as soon as we did those um, projects and they were incredibly successful, and then you just get a name for yourself. And then after a while, I remember it wasn't until I actually moved to um, New Zealand 17 years ago and I got a job um, and someone said, oh, it's kind of change management that you've been doing. I was like, what's change management? But actually <laughs> it was. And, um, yeah, and so I always got a name what I've been doing. That's pretty cool. And and then my kind of career in change, you know, I did different things. I've I've um, done hands-on change management. I've Then I kind of program change management then I was leading change management capabilities and then I ended up my last corporate role before I left the corporate world was managing not only I was head of strategic change and transformation so I was leading um, business analysts project managers change managers portfolio office so you know everything that basically the engine behind kind of the transformation in organizations Um, yeah but by that point I definitely wasn't enjoying it anymore, which is why I left, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, I was going to lead into that one because you know you you did go on and have an incredibly successful career in change management, and I do know that you you know took on a very senior role as your last role. But going back to my opening piece, where I said you know you put it, the wheels fell off at some point. What was going on at that time, and how did that feel? And and actually, more importantly, when did you recognise that the wheels had fallen off? Yeah, because I mean, we call it burnout now, really, don't we? The wheels, it's like, I mean, and it's a, it's a huge, it's, it's a pandemic, really, burnout. I think we're going to see a lot more of it. So what I would say is like, um, the interesting thing about burnout and the wheels falling off is the the actual, the bolts and the screws and the rust has been setting in for a while. And it's been a bit richard, you know, ratchety, if you call it that, but you've just been going so hard, you've not noticed. So it's not, I did hit a wall, but there'd been signs for a while. So, um, you know, I was incredibly ambitious, um, like always kind of looking for the next role. So going up that ladder. um, And then at the same time, I also was a runner. So I started um, running and became reasonably good and then got sponsored. So as well as my career kind of accelerating, I was um, a competitive athlete. And then I had babies and all these things were happening in tandem. And so, right, there's a perfect storm. You know, this kind of uh, people would have said a few years ago, I was incredibly tense, intense and passionate. And, and I was, but I don't I don't see that as a compliment now. I think I thought it was at the time. Um, and I, I started getting problems with my pelvis um, because I ran through my first pregnancy and then into my second pregnancy 
And then I um, got got this injury that was just a really, it was a really bad injury. It's called osteitis pubis, but they didn't, all my pelvis and everything was inflamed. Um, and I got postnatal depression as well. And I was trying to go back to work as quickly as possible because I thought being busy would stop me having to deal with all the fact that I was injured and wasn't feeling very nice in my, in my emotional state. And that's how I came to mindfulness. So I was one of these people that always had a plan. If something went wrong, I had a backup plan and all of a sudden I had nothing. They didn't know how long I'd be injured. I couldn't use my busyness and my exercise to distract me any longer. And um, I started doing mindfulness through the process of doing mindfulness mindfulness for myself it helped me deal with my chronic pain with my injury and also um you know the postnatal anxiety and depression I had but I think through that and I have to say it didn't happen overnight this happened over a few years I started to become more aware of myself in terms of how I showed up at work um how I treated my body and um I I guess I started also to notice that in the process of striving up the ladder, I was becoming a person that I didn't really like. I was, one of the people around me that I was like, oh, they're really bad behaviors in the workplace or they've got a high ego. That was actually me. I was becoming what I didn't want to become and what I um So, and then just not enjoying myself as well. But a few years ago, I got to a point where I had my third child and um, I'd stopped running by then, but I had some really bad pain in my hips again. And I had found out I was, I got bone on bone in both hips and I needed a double hip replacement. And so I had a double hip replacement and I had to sit for like weeks and not work and sit with myself and my practice of mindfulness really came back and deepened and in that I realized I was not happy in my job that I was do not doing a job that was about people anymore it was about me climbing up the ladder and it was actually even just the more senior you get that the harder it is I think in some ways it's to not be caught up in this culture of burnout it's the system, you know, you can tell people what to do to not burn out, but if we're in the system, that means they're going to burn out. It's very hard not to. And I just wasn't really enjoying it. So I said to myself, I'm going to leave, but I, I need to have a plan. And so I went to my, um, this is when I kind of went to my last role, which was a much bigger role was managing, leading to 200 people. And I said, I'll do this role because he'd asked me if I would do it but I only want to do it for a couple of years. And then, I, you know, I'm basically going to do such a good job that I'm going to make myself redundant. <laughs> and that was my plan. I said, because I just don't want to be here anymore. I, it took me a little bit longer, but in those two and a half years, I did indeed achieve my goal of making myself redundant and leaving and I didn't have a plan. But I would say it nearly killed me. I was so unbelievably fatigued and burnt out by the time I left. I feel like I'm giving really long answers, so I hope I'm not. No, this is absolutely fine. And, and <laughs> there'll be people who are listening who who will say, "Wow, that that does take an awful lot of confidence to leave a job." You know, if you built up a career, you know, spanning twenty years, you're you know well known for this. This is your brand, essentially. This is that takes a lot of confidence, a lot of balls to leave a job. How, how do, what was the conversation with yourself about that? I mean, you said you're unhappy and you spent time with yourself, but 
But what was the conversation? Because it does take confidence to leave a job and a career. Well, you know, at the crux of all change, I have I have a saying, which is the secret source of being able to change is everyone can change when the pain of not changing becomes bigger than the pain of changing. <laughs> and when you get to that point, often known as the breaking point, then all of a sudden confidence isn't a problem because you're in so much discomfort and suffering. <laughs> And I think I'd kind of got to that point. But I also wasn't brave enough that I was, and maybe it's being smart as well, that I was just going to, you know, even though my husband said, like, we can survive on my salary. If you're obviously really not happy, just leave. You know, I wasn't seeing my children. I was traveling three days a week up to Auckland because half my team were in Auckland. I had um, a young baby and two young uh, boys and I wasn't seeing them. The nanny was bringing them up. So, you know, I did over, over, it was planned out. And as it got closer, it was definitely nerve wracking. I remember signing my redundancy papers, you know, that, um, and, you know, my boss going, are you really sure about this? Because, you know, they would have kept me. They wanted, you know, I, in, uh, they could have found me a different role. And I was like, no. Um, and I would say, and this is something that if somebody is confident to make a change because they really realize that how they're living their life is not serving them and not what they want, um, when you do have the confidence to do it, be prepared for the rebound, you know, and the rebound is, you know, for the, I'd said I didn't have a plan of what I was going to do, but for three months I said I'm not going to make any decisions for three months. I'm just going to have a rest. But it was incredibly hard to have a rest when I'd been going at such a rate you know, working at such a rate. And my whole identity as Lottie had been linked to Lottie, the runner, the athlete. I used to do a little bit of fitness modeling, Lottie, the fitness model, Lottie, the um, the career woman, you know, and all of a sudden, all of that had been stripped away. And I had to actually, again, meet myself where I was at because I'm none of those things. I'm just mm. me inside the little spark. That's who I needed to befriend. And it was really, I remember getting up in the morning and you'd think, oh, I've got, you know, I could go and do anything, go and have a facial, I'd go for a walk. But I felt so unbelievably uncomfortable and anxious that I wasn't earning money and I wasn't attached to these labels or identities. And it probably took me three months to get comfortable. Um, and now, like, it was the best thing I ever did. Like, I love what I'm doing. I'm just so, I can't even tell you how grateful I am on a daily basis that I made that move. And just, it's not without its challenges, but I just love what I do so much. So passionate about it. Um, but that was very, very uncomfortable. And I think sometimes people get to the, that, they make a change. And then they're like, oh, they get like um, a bit scared, a bit cold feet. And they go and take maybe another job just so that they're busy again or do something and just sit with that discomfort for a while. It's so important to do that, but it doesn't feel like it at the time. Yeah, and it's almost like there's a design fault in being a human because, um, you know, the world physically is changing and yet humans just don't react well to it and their body is is taking them back constantly to a state of safeness, which is don't change. And I wonder if that's some of the, you know, spending time with yourself is making yourself comfortable with the change that's going on around you but really grounding yourself in that now I love hearing that you love what you're doing now so and I know you're just probably just as busy but in a totally different way and it's probably on your terms which is control yeah. is so important I think to for any satisfaction and happiness so what do you feel your day is doing 
So, um, so I am, you say about like um, being busy. And one of the things I have really realized in these last three and a half years is how important space is. I call it white space. Mm. Time in your diary with no agenda. Um, it's so unbelievably important. So I, I'm very protective of my time, but I also am like my week, the week, the day still go quickly. <laughs> the week still go quickly. <laughs> um, but I'm very big on boundaries. So ba- healthy boundaries is like, you know, and protecting time to kind of re- replenish. But I have a really nice balance in the kind of work that I do because I do some work that is one-on-one, so one-on-one coaching. I do, I do a lot of um, team workshops, so going into – so emotional culture is something I do a lot of, and I know you've done some work mm-hmm. with the emotional culture deck. So I've now run like over 60 emotional culture workshops, um, and so I do a lot of work getting you know going in and getting people in companies to really embrace emotions and look at how do they want to feel and not feel to be successful and understand each other's and create almost like culture canvases but look at how we embed that and that links very well with the mindfulness because you know mindful cultures are people that are very aware of how they feel and creating the desired feelings and understanding others and looking at what behaviors cultivate the desired feelings will will enable them to flourish, to collaborate, to perform really well. Um, there's a lot of psychological safety that comes with that. I'll do. I'd still do work on like leading change, but it's very much mindset focused rather than change management focused. You know, as in like coming in with a plan and a strategy. I run retreats, um, which I really, really love as well. Do a lot of work around um, like compassion and stillness, and they're great for leaders or people that just don't know how to slow down um and um i am now also doing a lot of breath work so i just trained as a breath work instructor and because it's quite hard sometimes to get senior executives and people to meditate a really great way to settle their nervous systems to get them to access meditation and mindfulness and look at those kind of um how to build mindful cultures is get them just to access the breath Mm. and it settles their nervous system which are normally highly aroused when our nervous systems are highly aroused, the parts of our brain that enable us to make good decisions, to be creative, um, to actually access confidence and things yeah. like that, they they get switched off. We're just in our stress response. So the breath work has been something that I've just added on to help as well. Um, yeah, so I kind of feel like I can be creative and I like to think it's almost like it's like an experiment. Like I, I'll have an idea. So like one of the things that I'm, Uh, looking at the moment is starting up an online wellness studio for for companies so that they can anybody anywhere can log in you can buy a corporate membership and you can do a meditation live meditation or a live breathwork session and even with especially at the moment when people aren't in the same workplace they can actually still do these things together Um, so I'm kind of looking at at sort of building that I did it as a pop-up during lockdown it was really popular so I'm looking at you know, adding that to my, um, I guess, suite of offerings, you could say. Breathwork. I'm just going back to breathwork because I see a lot of people who say, I, I don't like doing presentations. I hate going into board meetings. You know, I'm this person outside, I get into a board meeting, I'm somebody completely different and all my confidence goes out the door. And a lot of that can be managed, not necessarily controlled, but can be managed mm. through breathwork. So that, you know, internally, there may still be some you know, butterflies, but externally, 
people will not notice because you've got such control over your breath. Yeah. And I just find that really interesting and, and certainly something that I'm quite keen to understand a little bit more. And, and I suppose where, where can people find if they they go, yeah, I totally want to know more about this. How can people find out a bit more about that? Um, so a really great book that I totally recommend um, is Breathe by James Nestor. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous book. There's a few out there at the moment that are equally fabulous, but that was the one that I read that I really enjoyed. And a studio opened last year um, that I started going to that did breath work. And um, as, as I said, I got an autoimmune and I found that the breath work also helped um, control the flare-ups, the autoimmune. Um, the, so breath work, when it's done well, and there's so much to it, it's like mindfulness, like there's, there's so much science. And and if you look back, this is why the James Nestor book is so good because he talks about through history, calls them pul- pulmonauts, these people that discovered the power of the breath and how great it was for so many different ailments, etc. cetera. Um, and then he brings in the science as well. Um, and then he's kind of got some good stories and humour, so it's mm. very captivating as a non-fiction book. Like it's quite easy to read. But I noticed in myself like lots of benefits for, for me. Um, and the other thing about doing the breath work is you can, unlike meditation, and don't get me wrong because I still believe like meditation is so unbelievably important, it's still kind of like the centre of my practice, but um, for somebody that maybe has trauma or a very aroused um, nervous system, the thought of sitting with their own mind for a few minutes is not a pleasant thought and you don't come away from it often feeling that pleasant. Mm. It's great. It's a digestion process, but it's often not that pleasant. Breath work, you do come away feeling more settled. You do, it is, it's, you can access it, providing you don't have a trauma around the breath, which they're, you know, I, I do a lot of what's called trauma-informed mindfulness and trauma-informed work. 92% of people on the planet have trauma at some point in their lives, mm. so it's important to be aware of it. But if you don't, then the, the breath is a great way. So the way you just need to know how to articulate the breath because some breath will make your brain more aroused and more focused and more awake. Some breath will set you down and make you sleepy, but it's just knowing how to do it. So I do um, soma breath. My sessions that I run, I mean, I can run short ones, but if I run a class, it's an hour class. Okay. We start with a bit of meditation just to settle. We normally focus on gratitude because gratitude raises the vibrational level in your body. This sounds like we were, but it's all back up by science because <laughs> our body is just everything, everything, anything that you can touch and see is vibration. It's like molecules are vibrating together. And so this kind of kind of is a good way to start with a gratitude, um, just focusing on something's very simple. Then we go into moving the body, moving the rib cage, moving. So you kind of get warm, but you move. If it's an active class, we might stand up, but otherwise we just do all sitting, just opening the chest, warming up the muscles between the ribs. Then we go on to five minutes of chanting or humming. So again, the chanting might make, make people run for the hills, but as if you don't want to chant, you can hum. But on a base level, what it does is it gets your polyvagal um, nerve like tuned and switched on. It massages the poly. So if you've ever, have you ever hummed when you're like, you're in a content state, mm-hmm. you're going around, you know, like the, doing your cooking and kids hum. And that's very soothing for your polyvagal nerve, which is your um, kind of uh, restore and rest, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system, that side of things. And then we go into a 20 minute breathwork journey. People come out of it, like I was doing it through lockdown and people were like addicted to it. Like they were, because they feel so good afterwards. You can feel this kind of, 
letting go and releasing of tension and um, like I'd really, you do feel nicer. So, um, but you can also just do things like if somebody's going into a presentation, try a rhythm where you breathe out for twice as long as you breathe in. So I, and always breathe in through the nose. That's really important. So you breathe in through the nose, say for four counts and then out through the mouth for eight counts and do that for, I don't know, 10 rounds and you'll notice you'll start to settle. So, um, yeah, so there's lots of ways, but I can't, I can't talk enough about, I've become really nerdy. <laughs> oh, not we could talk for hours. Honestly, I find you so interesting and you've got so many little things and tips and hints to share with people. I love it. Um, but I do know that you're going away next week for a silent retreat and that takes some balls to do that because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're a talker. I'm a talker. <laughs> How how do you have the confidence to say, that's it, I'm going on a silent retreat? Or maybe just tell us what a silent retreat is, because I might have got the wrong assumptions. No, it is silent. Um, uh, So I go on a silent retreat every year. It's part of like being a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, like for your own practice. You know, it's, you have to, you have to obviously role model, eat your own dog food, all of that. Um, but it is a very, very rewarding thing to do. So I do seven days. Um, the first time I went, I was scared. Like I think I had to have that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to have even got my certification, like um, registered as a teacher if I hadn't have done that. Because there's a lot of people that say they're mindfulness teachers and it's they're not properly mm-hmm. trained. Just, that's very important to know. Um, and so you do, you, like, you don't, you don't, you're invited not to speak. So like the person who leads it will say, you know, nothing's forbidden because, but if you break silence, then you're breaking it for other people. So of course, nobody does speak. And also it's kind of taking away any stimulation. So you don't, you know, no phones, no TV, no reading, you can journal. Um, So the idea is to take away all of those things that you use to distract yourself from what's going on in your mind. Um, and you do go through often a dark night of the soul because all of a sudden you're faced with your inner critic and, Mm. you know, all of these things. Um, but there is a, there's, there's a burning off of stuff that doesn't serve you. You know, um, you've probably heard of the word enlightenment. You know, they talk about doing mindfulness, become enlightened, but really all when, when the Buddha talked about being enlightened, actually, and the Buddha was a real person, by the way, um, he actually, what? what he meant was it's a, a, a letting go and a bringing forth. So a letting go of all the crap that you don't need in your life and a bringing forth of all the things you do need. So that's what can happen on a mm. silent retreat, a lot of burning off of stuff and a lot of bringing in what you need. So, um, yeah, the one I'm going on next week's a little bit different. I normally go to a retreat center and you're with 40 other people not talking, but you're not alone. The one that I was due to go on got canceled because of COVID and was going into a virtual retreat so you log online every day um, and you have the talks and the sits all kind of together on little zoom windows but um i've got three kids so doing what a virtual retreat at home is not a reality for me so i've booked a house out in the countryside <laughs> sounds terribly so amazing <laughs> and so i go to my husband's dropping me off tomorrow and i will basically i will it'll be true silence because i'll be on my own for seven days I'm really excited, but I'm also aware that there will be some tough moments. Um, a retreat is not a spa. People <laughs> 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 are like, oh, you're going away a retreat. Well, that's really nice. I think I'm going to be having facials and stuff. 
It's not, it's not like that. And also not having the accountability when you're with lots of people, you wouldn't dare like look at your phone or watch TV or something, but I'm in a house on my own that's got a TV and I could, nobody's around to watch me. So that's going to be interesting having that self accountability mm-hmm. to resist temptation, you know? So yeah, you, I'm looking forward to it though. But you must know that, that at the end it's worth that investment oh, of, 100%. I know you're allowed to hum, like raise your vibrational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't think about that. Um, yeah. I mean, the, what you do talk at, you normally have like a catch up with your, your leader, your retreat leader. Um, so there is you technically you talk for about an hour of it, but I won't, I probably am not going to do that with mine. I'm just going to really go into silence. Um, no, I probably wouldn't, I'm not going to hum. Um, I'll just literally be in silence. Um, luck with that. Oh my word. So um, just to sort of close off then, if people are saying, Lottie sounds really interesting. I really like what she speaks, um, what she stands for and what she's saying. How can people find you? Um, so I have got a website. It is going to be updated. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit out of date in terms of what I do, but it's got all the bones on it, which is um, www.mindyou.co.nz. Um, a really good way to kind of keep in the know of what I'm doing right now, because the reason I'm getting my website updated is it's incredibly hard to it like like I always forget how to update it and so that's why I'm getting a better platform um so is either through Instagram so um lolly.roberts on Instagram or um lolly roberts on LinkedIn because I'm always putting what I'm doing like if I've got a retreat coming up I'll pop it on there um I've got um probably won't be this will be out after I've done it but I've got like a kind mind seven day challenge coming up where people meditate with me. I'll be popping stuff around when I start up the wellness studio permanently. I'll be putting stuff on there. Um, and then um, lolly at mindyou.co.nz is my email. Um, you know, I really, it's not like I'm Brené Brown. I say to people, if you want to email me, I'm not going to exactly get like thousands and thousands like she would if she gave an email out. But um, I do try to take pride in making sure I reply if people get in touch, even if I'm not able to help them in that moment I always try to get back to people I've also got a podcast myself um but it's very different kind of subject so I interview people around the subject of vulnerability um and what you know what happens um you know when you turn away from vulnerability your stories of vulnerability so it's all to kind of support mental wellness so you can find that on like Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. So there's something around that called the vulnerability effect. Lovely. And we'll put all those details in the uh, in the podcast anyway. So thank you. Lottie, you've been so amazing. I love oh, having you here. And you have to come back for another episode because I feel like we've got more to talk about. And I, I think I said to you last time I spoke to you, I feel there's a book in you somewhere. So um, <laughs> no pressure. This, this ephemeral book that I've been talking about so I long, I wonder if it will ever happen. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time it's been brilliant thank you thank you I've loved chatting to you I feel really um honored that you asked me on the show so thank you so much yes thank you thank you thank you so much for listening to women in confidence and I hope you enjoyed it if you did then please like it share it comment on it and if you want to sponsor it if you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.